You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Common grace and antithesis are theological tools of discernment. The antithesis idea helps us see that the differences between belief and unbelief are real and pervasive. But the common grace idea tells us that the God whom Calvinists worship and serve has not abandoned the unbelieving world. We know that both the hellish and the heavenly are realities in the world. We know that we can fully expect to catch glimpses, sometimes even glorious ones, of truth, goodness, and beauty in the lives of those who do not profess Christ, even while we must be on guard not to be taken in by hellish deceptions. Both ideas encourage us to keep our spiritual eyes open, always with an awareness that we need to work hard at cultivating a God-honoring discernment. We find these words in the second chapter of a new work, Adventures in Evangelical Civility, A Lifelong Quest for Common Ground, published in November 2016 by Brazos Press and written by our guest on Christian Humanist Profiles today, Dr. Richard J. Mao. My name is Todd Pedler, and I'm an associate professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, and it's my pleasure to be your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. Our guest, Dr. Richard Mao, is a professor of faith and public life at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, where he is also president emeritus, having served as Fuller's president from 1993 to 2013. He holds BA from Houghton College, the MA from the University of Alberta, and the PhD from the University of Chicago, all in philosophy. Prior to coming to Fuller in 1985 as professor of Christian philosophy and ethics, He served as professor of philosophy at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan for 17 years. Dr. Mao is widely published and is recognized as a strong voice for the thoughtful engagement of Christians in the public square with the broader society in which we live, and particularly with those of other faith traditions who are our neighbors and our friends. Among his published work, the books which most directly address the issues which we'll discuss today include Uncommon Decency, Christian Civility in an Uncivil World, He Shines in All That's Fair, Culture and Common Grace, and Calvinism in the Las Vegas Airport, Making Connections in Today's World. His most recent book, the subject of our discussion today, discusses one of his lifelong passions, to seek to live honorably alongside others whose understanding of life, the universe, and everything might differ strikingly from us, to recognize the realities and blessings of what Reformed Christians have denoted common grace. It is a work that aims particularly to help evangelical Christians grapple with what it means to be Christian in a world that, on the whole, is not, and to move beyond the temptation to reject wholesale that which is not fully aligned with our Christian perspective. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Mao again to Christian Humanist Profiles. So, Dr. Mao, my warmest welcomes to you, sir. Well, thank you, Todd. It's great to be back with you. Yeah. Well, it's uh, I very much enjoyed our conversation, and I can't believe it's already more than a year ago, uh, almost two years, about your book called Life of the Mind. Um, and so because we, because we had that previous conversation, because I'd point our listeners to, to go back and take a listen to that, uh, uh, that fun hour, uh, I'll forgo a question we often ask about your personal history and journey um, of faith as a member of the Academy. And I want to uh, begin, actually, with another topic that's normally on my mind when I encounter an author whose book I've read, um, and that is the origin of this book. It's a it's a memoir of sorts, and I wonder if you'd tell us how you got this project going and and decided to compile these thoughts for your readers. Yeah, thanks, Dad. Well, uh, you know, I've had a 
number of people along the way, mainly because I was in a rather prominent position being the president of Fuller Seminary as kind of a a public platform in ways that a lot of other seminary or college presidencies are, are not. And, uh, you know, so people, boy, you must have had an interesting career being a scholar and then become president, the largest accredited seminary in, you know, in the world and all of us. And uh, uh, are you, are you going to write your autobiography? Well, you know, autobiographies can be pretty dull. I mean, you know, you'd say, well, gee, that year I... Uh, yeah, I taught three courses, and uh, yeah, I wrote a little bit on a book. You know, I spoke someplace, but you know, that that's just kind of rattling off events. And uh, so I, I I I never really wanted to write my autobiography. You know, what it was like being raised in New Jersey, <laughs> playing in the high school band. Uh, that's not the kind of thing that you particularly you know find very interesting to yourself, even. Hmm. Uh, and or or the you know my first dates and all of that which I wouldn't want to talk about, <laughs> but uh, I I did think you know what what has been uh, compelling for me throughout my career uh, because I've done a lot of different things and is there is there a common thread to all of that? Hmm. And uh, one thing I did is I went back just about uh, three years ago I went back and. Reread my PhD dissertation, which I'd written at the University of Chicago and hadn't looked at for 40 years, and uh, I, I found it better than I remembered it being. I mean, sometimes it goes the other way around, but uh, and and I saw a lot of things. I was in analytic philosophy, you know, studying not not uh, necessarily religious topics, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I I saw some things coming out there that uh, I, were very much uh, matters of my own interest today. And I decided I would take the idea of commonness. Uh, what, do, what do we have in common as human beings, as people with dis- who disagree with each other, people of different religious or non-religious perspectives? That notion of commonness... Uh, and I, I, I realize that what I've been doing pretty much all along is just looking at various aspects of of that question. And uh, it may seem like a, a, a rather trivial question, but for those of us who have been engaged in communities with very strong religious convictions, there's a tendency to not know really how to think positively about the other, you know. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, uh, it was all about uh, being strong in your own faith and uh, uh, trying very hard not to not to cooperate with or learn too much from people that you disagreed with. Hmm. And you know, church versus world, or the saints versus the the reprobates, uh, kind of thing. And hmm. so, uh, but as you know, Todd, I mean, you get into the academy and you start uh, reading people that come from different times, different places, different religious or irreligious perspectives, Mm -hmm. and uh, you think, boy, that's well-written, or that's a great insight. Mm -hmm. And then my question is, how do we understand that from a Christian point of view? Uh, What's going on when a Mozart or a Picasso or a Nietzsche Hmm. Uh, can say things that you find uh, well said, well formulated, and if not, 
to your liking intellectually, at least you're grateful that they raised points like that. They gave you things to think about, you know. Mm -hmm. So I got into that whole question of, uh, you might say, the philosophy and the theology of uh, of commonness. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, one of the one of the things that I most appreciate about this book is is the fuel that it really gives to my fire for my continued teaching at Luther, um, a, liberal, a liberal arts college of the church, as we like to call ourselves, um, in which part of our aim is to bring students to a realization of the worth of studying perspectives outside the room, um, to be broadly educated, in other words. Um, I think one of the most helpful things that your book does is ground the appreciation for truths and insights that diverse people have to ground that in our common humanity. Uh, if we, you know, if we truly believe that humanity in its fullness, as you say, in a couple of places, um, really must encompass all, then we have at our fingertips, if we're willing to look uh, at it, a, a treasury from which there's a lot of richness that can be gleaned in the literatures and arts of, of all kinds of people. Um, so how, how did, how did that realization come alive for you? Well, I mean, autobiographically, it just yeah. came alive and mm -hmm. experiencing real tensions, you know, that, mm -hmm. uh, I start, I start college and I, uh, believe that, uh, Christianity has the truth and that the sinful world is a place of error. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then, you know, I, I, I read uh, Plato. Yeah. Or I read, as I, I point out in my book, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was, you know, at at, at best a Unitarian. Right. Uh, even, even though he thought they were a little too dogmatic <laughs> about things. Yeah. And, uh, and yet there, there were passages that, that the... You know, as a sophomore and junior in college, passages that I read in Emerson that I found, you know, deeply moving and inspiring. Or a Walt Whitman. I did a lot of English major stuff as mm -hmm. as an undergraduate. So you know, I'm reading the you know Thomas Hardy, who has a very a very pessimistic view of reality in which there is no God, mm -hmm. and yet the way he develops his characters and the way he uh, narrates uh, his plot, just powerful stuff. Mm. And uh, you come away, and, 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 and then I'm thinking, uh, but oh, I mean, am I being taken in by some kind of sinful, you know, <laughs> sinful thought here? Mm. And uh, it, it really led me to start thinking about how do I understand the fact that I can really enjoy, uh, maybe that's the wrong word, but really. Uh, profit from reading a Thomas Hardy novel hmm. uh, as a Christian, even though his worldview and really his fundamental project uh, is antithetical to a lot of what I believe, and yet it's a good book, you know. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, fortunately, early on, I'm a Calvinist, you know, so I'm reading John Calvin, and there's this wonderful place in Calvin's Institute. You know, Calvin, before he was a, a Christian, Mm -hmm. uh, studied law, and he loved uh, Seneca and Cicero, mm -hmm. uh, the ancient uh, pagan uh, Greco-Roman writings. Mm -hmm. And even after he became a Christian and a, and a, a rather you know deep theologian, uh, he would still on occasion uh, quote Seneca uh, to make a point. 
Mm. And uh, at a certain point, he, he realizes that some people might be kind of thrown by this. And so he says, hey, you know, these ancient writers, uh, they may not have been Christians, uh, but all truth comes from the Spirit of God. And if we find truth in these people and we refuse to accept it as truth, we're grieving the Spirit of God. Hmm. Well, now, from John Calvin, who had a very strong sense of sin versus you know, grace, mm-hmm. uh, to me that was a powerful point, that, uh, that we, we, we shouldn't reject beauty or truth or portrayals of goodness uh, from non-Christian writers, because in doing so, we grieve the Spirit of God. But, you know, the positive side of that is we ought to look for that stuff. <laughs> mm. Because if the Spirit of God is at work in pagan writers, in uh, unbelieving, you know, French artists, uh, mm. um, whose lives may be full of a lot of bad things, but nonetheless they produce uh, uh, a painting or a sculpture that is mm. uh, uh, powerfully, aesthetically enriching, fulfilling, uh, that we, if, if that's the spirit of God at work through those people, I mean, using them, their particular talents, hmm. uh, then uh, well, we're honoring God by, by studying that kind of thing. Hmm. Hmm. This reminds me a lot of, of, uh, of C.S. Lewis in his writings on medieval literature and, and whatnot that I've, I've done a little reading in, um, and, and his insistence that there is good to be learned, uh, to be gleaned from, from these people. Um, you know, and I think a lot of Christians would, would run to Lewis and say, yes, it's good to, you know, to listen to Lewis interpret these things, but might be hesitant to go and, and read, uh, read the Plato and, uh, and, and read the medieval thinkers and, and whatnot. But, uh, you'd argue opposite, uh, the opposite point, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, well, rather than march through the table of contents of this book, uh, I, I think it might serve our purposes more adequately to have a conversation about some of the things you've you've touched on in it, uh, so that yeah. our audience has a rough a rough sketch of where you go with this book and be prompted both to think about these matters, um, and also I hope to grab a copy uh, of the book and explore it more deeply. So, well, thank you. Yeah. With, with 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 that in mind, I, I think a first matter that would really help us set the stage would be for you to define for us, especially for those for whom the term is unfamiliar, uh, the term common grace. So I, I quoted a passage from chapter two where you where you introduced the, the ideas of common grace and antithesis. And I wonder if you could outline maybe each of those uh, those perspectives for us a little bit. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, Todd, they, they come out of a, a, the Calvinist tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, the Calvinist tradition does hold that Sin affects not only, you know, sort of personal things like our morality or sexuality or whatever, but that it, it pervades all of life. And so that uh, to talk about total depravity doesn't mean that everybody, everything any unbeliever does is just absolutely obnoxious uh, mm-hmm. to God, but that sin affects the totality of our lives, the totality of our being. And um, this tends then to um, uh, create a suspicion of uh, intellectual activity, aesthetics, uh, even you know moral endeavors. 
that emerge out of people who are are not redeemed, who are not uh, regenerated in a in a Christian sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been very strong in the Calvinist tradition, and more generally in the Pietist tradition. I mean, uh, Lutheran Pietism has mm-hmm. a very similar thing. You know, it's us versus the world, and we've got not to be world worldly. Uh, and we have to be careful not to be tainted by the sinfulness of the world. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of over-againstness that uh, these theologies, in their stark uh, simplicity, uh, tend to promote. But as I pointed out, John Calvin at the same time says, yeah, but how do I reconcile that with somebody like Cicero or mm-hmm. Seneca? And uh, my hero, Abraham Kuyper, the great 19th century Dutch theologian and Prime Minister and many other mm-hmm. things uh, had a very, very similar uh, thing about uh, his political opponents, people that he often found things to agree with in, mm-hmm. in political life. Um, and so, if you believe that there is a saving grace that God does in the hearts of individuals, uh, reconciling them uh, through Christ uh, to uh, God. Uh, common, that's a special grace, that's a saving grace, what we call salvific uh, grace. Mm-hmm. But the argument is that there's a, a non-saving grace that is nonetheless an attitude of divine favor uh, toward people who are not and will not be redeemed, but who nonetheless uh, serve God's purposes in the world. So that uh, mm-hmm. in a, a recent presidential campaign, uh, here in the United States, uh, mm-hmm. people who supported Donald Trump uh, and you know disagreed with some of his personal moral <laughs> behavior, mm-hmm. some of the really bad stuff that he talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, very often, they would say, uh, not only well, maybe he's like King David, you know, who who was a godly person who did some bad things, but the other example was Cyrus, the ancient pagan mm-hmm. emperor. And, and and yet in the Bible it says that he's God's anointed. Well, what did God anoint him for? Uh, well, to do things that actually benefited uh, the people of Israel, hmm. and to do things that actually promoted uh, uh, some of God's cause in the world of hmm. justice and peacemaking, righteousness. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there is that Cyrus phenomenon in, in the Bible that uh, mm-hmm. God often brings about good things by by harnessing uh, certain talents and abilities in a person who is not a not a, not a redeemed person and so common grace is, is that that's one of the aspects of common grace is God using people and uh, and in many ways celebrating uh, what they've done mm-hmm. one, one of the examples that I've used a lot uh, I don't deal with it in my book but about 3,000 years before Christ, uh, in ancient China, there were potters who produced uh, these marvelous little uh, ceramic pieces called eggshell pottery. And they were very delicate, hmm. wonderful etchings on them, just beautiful pieces. And this is, you know, 2,500 years before Christ. Uh, God looks at that. Uh, what does God think of that, you know? Well, I think God says, that's good, that's good stuff, you know. Hmm. And that God, in a, in a what we consider to be a non-Christian fallen culture, nonetheless harnesses these wonderful aesthetic 
abilities in Chinese potters and produces things that are of a kind of beauty that brings glory to God. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think that, well, let me let me I guess interrupt myself here. <laughs> As I, I myself am, uh, am also an, an evangelical Calvinist, I guess if you would if you put me into uh, into those terms, I come more from the Westminsterian side than the Dort side, uh, as you do. Um, but questions of common ground with with those outside the Christian faith really are intriguing to me. Um, I'm you know presbyterian in convictions uh but i have a great deal of respect for and have learned a great deal from two giants that you name in in your book Cornelius Van Til and and Abraham Kuyper who you've already mentioned um as i read them the two have somewhat different perspectives on the concept of common grace and maybe discussing their points of view in broad terms might help us too so could you Give us a, a synopsis of, of each of those thinkers and how they, how their views are nuanced. Yeah, right. Yeah. And two Dutchmen, you know. So they, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but well, you know, it's interesting. Eighteen ninety-eight, Abraham Kuyper uh, came to Princeton Seminary mm-hmm. to deliver what are still going on uh, annually, the Stone Lectures, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a rousing call for. Uh, Calvinists in America mm-hmm. to uh, take culture seriously and to engage in culture. And he talks about common grace there too, working alongside of others where possible, you know, to promote justice and mm-hmm. politics and beauty and the arts and truth and the sciences and, and all the rest. Uh, but he was speaking to a Presbyterian crowd that was under a lot of cultural duress. Mm. Uh, they, uh, they, Calvinism was was losing its grip here in North America, right at the hmm. end of the 19th century. Uh, evolutionism, uh, liberal Protestantism was emerging, mm-hmm. and so as you know, there was a group uh, within the next uh, 20 years who, uh, led by some brilliant people, uh, especially J. Gresham Machen, who was mm-hmm. the the founder of Westminster Seminary, mm-hmm. who um, uh, basically left the mainline denomination. Uh, they had a somewhat pessimistic view of what was happening in the larger culture, and so there was a kind of uh, um, uh, kind of a disjoint between Kuiper's enthusiasm for you know we can do it, yes we can, you know, <laughs> and these people yeah. who were feeling very defeated. And Cornelius Van Til was a young man. Uh, in those early years of the 20th century, who left, he started off at Princeton Seminary, and he left with Machen. Mm-hmm. And and he had a very, uh, I would say, a very pessimistic view of, of the culture, and mm-hmm. really thought that Kuyper, Kuyper's common grace idea was, uh, was too optimistic, and uh, allowed for too much accommodation to non-Christian ideas and non-Christian patterns. And so even though they both had the same kind of reformed Presbyterian Calvinistic view of things, mm-hmm. uh, they, they they had different attitudes toward the actual culture in which they found themselves. And so Van Til, while allowing uh, an element of common grace, 
it was for Ventil. Yeah, there, there are some things, but you know, uh, we've got to be very careful about it. We, uh, and I mean, I can get into some of the details there of his theology, but but basically, it was not what you would think of as a robust view of common grace that allowed for active learning from people with whom you disagree, but mm-hmm. more of a, a protective. Uh, we've got to build up the walls to make sure that these bad ideas don't uh, destroy the the small group of the faithful. You know. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I think actually uh, this this sort of segues us into some of the discussion that I was uh, hoping we'd get into, and and that is, um, well, since, just to continue on that thought, you know, what are some of the objections? specifically maybe that we hear in our churches today um to this idea of common grace uh, among people you've already mentioned one uh the the notion uh the the, the doctrine that uh, most orthodox hold that uh we are depraved that uh, uh that that there there that sin does infect all aspects of our lives um how does that a belief in that doctrine, um, how does that work its way into people's evaluation of common grace then? And then maybe if you've got other objections in mind, you might bring those up too. Yeah. Well, I think the the the, the basic concern is that, uh, you know, Abraham Kuyper had both of these ideas, antithesis and common grace. And here he was leading a political party. And uh, as some scholars have pointed out, he he used these ideas very effectively in his political life. So when he was trying to rally the troops, uh, you know, to support his program and to be a part of his political party, uh, he talked antithesis. You know, we we have the truth and and all those others are false views. But uh, when his party would win elections, and for example, when he was prime minister, then he would form coalitions, you know, because it was a parliamentary system. Mm-hmm. And then he would talk common grace, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't a contradiction, but it was uh, when you're when you're you're trying to talk uh, among yourselves about what your views are, you you emphasize those things that define you as over against all the others. But at the same time. When you're out there in the world uh, trying to do things, uh, you also look for uh, opportunities to cooperate, to form alignments, coalitions. And, uh, uh, and, and, and there are people who say, look what happens with that. Uh, you end up uh, compromising. Uh, you end up losing your convictions. Uh, this common grace idea uh, inevitably, historically, uh, kind of build, uh, breaks down our defenses against sinful thought and practice. And uh, it's just uh, historically it can be shown, this is the argument now, mm-hmm. that uh, it just uh, really undercuts the, the cause of truth. And uh, and so there's, there's a real fear among those who oppose common grace uh, of uh, cultural accommodation to bad things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that we, 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 and, and, you know, psychologically, I, I understand this. I mean, I, I, I've been engaged a lot with, uh, 
dialogue with, for example, the the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I know really nice Muslim people. I know Muslim mothers who I know pray for their kids every day when they mm-hmm. send them off to public schools where a lot of times these days little Muslim kids get beat up in schoolyards. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of bullying going on. And uh, so if you ask me, you know, does God hear those prayers? You know, does God see the tears of a Muslim mother who uh, is grieving over the fact that her kid got beat up in school? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I would just say, yeah, no. You know, so, so that uh, sometimes it's a fear of just getting to know people too well and letting your theological defenses go down, you know. And uh, I understand that, but at the same time, what it does for me is to reinforce and or create and reinforce a sense of, of mystery. Uh, hmm. I don't know. There are a lot of things I don't understand out there. And uh, I go back to John Calvin saying, you know, that in some mysterious way, God is at work in Seneca mm-hmm. and in, in Plato. And uh, I don't have to say, well, it must be that everybody's saved in the end or anything like that. But uh, right. you just leave some things up to the mysterious workings of God. Mm. Mm. Can, can we talk a little bit about how... Um, how does the how how does this perspective um, that that really you do a very nice job of laying out this this idea of the commonness of us in creation? Um, how does that understanding Im, Im, impact us as we as we walk about in the world? I mean, what does it do for us? And particularly, if you want to talk about. Um, uh, that notion as as helping us along in terms of Christian virtues that might be interesting to discuss. So yeah, right, right. Well, I I think uh, I I think that we need all kinds of reinforcements to uh, get beyond surfaces and see people in certain ways. Uh, this kind of a, I'll I'll make this a short story, but I once worked in a factory where there was this. Night watchman who always wanted to talk to me, and he, I, I didn't find him very bright. He was uncouth, and, and I was working a night shift in a factory. And whenever I had a break, I'd, I'd have my books. I was a seminary student at that time, and mm-hmm. I had to be reading church history and studying Hebrew. And mm-hmm. so one night, old Jeb comes by, and he sees me reading, and, and uh, he said, "You really like books, don't you?" <laughs> I said, well, yeah. And he said, "Yeah." He said, "Ernie really liked books too." And I said, Ernie, Ernie who? He said, Ernie Hemingway. I said, what do you know about <laughs> Ernie Hemingway? He said, well, I spent a couple of months one summer as his hunting and fishing guide. You know, we stayed in the same tent. And that Ernie, he would just lie there at night, and I'd go to sleep, but he'd have his flashlight on, always reading books. Ernie, always reading books, you know. Uh-huh. Well, now here this uncouth guy, uh, suddenly... I saw him as somebody who knew Ernest Hemingway, you know. Mm-hmm. He slept in the same tent with him. And I had a, a, a very different picture of who he was, you know. Well, this is kind of a crude analogy, but, you know, to look at the the Muslim woman or to look at the skinhead teen mm-hmm. as somebody whom God created. Mm-hmm. 
And God had some kind of purpose and may have very well invested certain uh, important qualities in that person uh, that are maybe misdirected or or misspent. Hmm. But um, a lot of it is, is just how we see people. So it's not so much, well, do they have evil thoughts or, you know, is their theology wrong? But um, that these are people who are created in the image of God, mm. and that uh, that we, when when the Bible tells us that we're to seek shalom, that we're to try to live at peace with all human beings, uh, that that there's a kind of uh, obligation there, I think, to cultivate a certain way of seeing people, mm-hmm. so that even where we have to disagree with them and maybe strenuously oppose them, they're still that that's that, that's tied in with a, a sense of grieving over what what they were created to be and they are not mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and so i think that uh, we we've we've not done enough with that that virtuous uh disposition mm-hmm. to uh to see people with respect so you know i keep using this verse uh in first peter 3 that i was raised with you know always be ready to give to anyone Mm-hmm. who ask of you a reason for the hope that lies within you. You know, stand up for Jesus, tell the truth. Mm-hmm. But they never went on, uh, as I remember, uh, mm-hmm. to the next part. But do so with gentleness and reverence. You know? mm-hmm. And what does it mean for me to take people that I disagree with and treat them with gentleness and reverence? Mm-hmm. And I know that you can stretch that too far. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, a, a, a disposition to begin with a sense of revering that which God has Im- invested in them. Um, that's that's a very important place to start. I mean, then, then mm-hmm. you end up saying, you know, to Hitler, you really screwed it up, and you know, mm-hmm. I got to deal with you. But mm-hmm. it, the, the, still, there is a kind of, I, I think, a virtuous disposition that has to be cultivated. Uh, out of the conviction that human beings are created in the divine image. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to piggyback on that idea a little bit and just talk about, I mean, we're we're recording this at a particular time in our culture in which I see anyway, and no, you, you certainly can reflect on your agreement or disagreement with this, but I, I, I see an incredible tendency to want others to be in total lockstep agreement with you every step of the way in order to give them that grace, to give them that uh, recognition. So so in the face of that uh, in our society, uh, how, how important is this for the church to, to engage with others in a way that is fragrant, shall I say, you know, um, in this way? Well, I, I think there are two, two levels on that I want to deal with that. I think within mm-hmm. the life of the Church, uh, you know, I, I think the confession of sin is very important. And mm-hmm. For me, Psalm 139 is, is such a great psalm because mm-hmm. at a certain point the psalmist says, Lord, I hate your enemies with a perfect hatred. You know, there's kind of arrogance there. Mm-hmm. You and I are on the same side, and then it's it's as if he stops and says, "Wait a minute." And then his next line is, "Search me and know my thoughts; mm-hmm. see if there be any wicked way in me." Mm-hmm. 
and uh, I think it's in the church that we're called to, before we simply tell God how good we are and, and how much we are aligned with his purposes, that we, we look into ourselves and, and we allow God to, we're, we're under the divine gaze, you know. Hmm. Now, for academics, there's a there's a parallel to that, and, and I actually think it, it's a, a, a virtuous part of the academic life that needs to grow out of that sense of repentance. But it's that, you know, in our disciplines, whether it's literature, philosophy, chemistry, uh, we we start off with certain things that, that we affirm strongly, and but we know that when you uh, give a, a paper at an academic convention and there's a respondent, that uh, very often the person makes some good points, you know? Hmm. And, and and there's a way of seeing that as search me and know my thoughts and see, you know that maybe God is working through our academic critics hmm. uh, to correct us and and when we've done enough of that give and take in the academy, um, it 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 can uh, to me a, a virtuous scholarly life is is a life of always being willing to listen to our critics. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And acknowledging that they, we may have some things to learn from them, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 all of that for me has to do with a lot of autobiographical stuff. That, you know, when mm-hmm. I was twelve years old, I I really did believe that the world was created in six literal days, mm-hmm. and and it was only by listening to biology teachers and and good Christian thinkers who raise questions about what's the genre of literature there, what's what's God really trying to get through to us about in Genesis 1, mm. uh, that, that that I changed. And, and uh, th- there are so many things in my life that, uh, in, in you know, purely theological terms that I've changed my mind about, mm. that uh, I just think there's a kind of humility that we need to bring to dialogue so that even people with whom... I personally, as a conservative type, uh, disagree on sexuality issues, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I still need to hear them testify to the fact that my kind of people have been inexcusably cruel to folks mm-hmm. who struggle with what they struggle with in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that uh, the feminist critique, uh, we have to learn from from people who mm-hmm. tell us how bad a male-dominated church has often been to women, and mm-hmm. you know we need to be open to those critiques. And I think there's a there's a spiritual humility that, for some of us, also has to issue forth in a kind of civil humility hmm. and an academic humility. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things that uh, just to touch on one of the chapters that I found particularly uh, wonderful in this regard. Um, is your uh, chapter eight, which is uh, one in which you focus on on covenant making and and keeping and and given our fallen nature, covenant breaking. Um, as as we think about ourselves as people who join together in covenant with other people across the board, whether it is uh, civil covenants with, with uh, all people or, or within the church. Um, it, it's humility in the exercise of this part of our lives, I think, that can help us 
as the church bear witness to the chief and perfect covenant keeper, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how? So I, this is just one area where I think actually our honesty with other people um, can help us forge connections um, in a particular way. And you, you reminded me of this by by discussing listening to our harshest critics, perhaps those that have the hardest words for us in the church. Um, why is, first of all, why is it so important for us in talking to others to be able to especially listen to where we have failed as covenant keepers? Um, but why is it so hard for us to do this? Yeah. Good question. Yeah. And I, I think the... I think the tendency is, and it's a sinful tendency, is to always put the best possible interpretation on our own views and practices and the worst possible interpretation on others, you know. And so there's a a lovely little piece, you can find it online by uh, a scholar. It's called the the Dialogue Decalogue, Ten Commandments for People Who Engage in Interfaith Dialogue. Leonard Swidler. S W I D L E R, and uh, he's got these commandments, uh, some better than others. But uh, he says, uh, when you're dialoguing with somebody you, you disagree with, don't offer your best view against their worst view. You know, hmm. I mean, there's that tendency. Uh, I co-chaired a Catholic Reform dialogue for five years with a Catholic bishop, and we kiddingly began by saying. You know, you, you don't you don't hold up John Calvin against uh, village me- Mexican uh, Catholicism, hmm. nor do you hold up the Vatican documents against the snake handlers in Mississippi. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you either put your best case against their best case or your worst case against their worst case. Mm-hmm. And but there's that tendency to, you know, for we want to win the arguments. And uh, we forget about the the ways in which engaging in arguments and listening to our critics can actually uh, teach us things, and that it may very well be that God is at work in these dialogues. One of the best Mm -hmm. sermons I've ever heard, uh, or at least most memorable, was a guy who preached a, a wonderful sermon on Jonah and the hold of the ship. And he said, this is all we know. Uh, There's a a God-honoring prophet and a bunch of pagan sailors, and they have an argument. Uh, whose side are you on? Uh, well, obviously, you know, we would we would bet on the on the prophet. But he said, in this case, they were right and he was wrong. You know, hmm. they said you must be running away from something, <laughs> and God must be punishing you. You know, and he said sometimes we the world needs to preach sermons to the church that we need to listen to. Hmm. And that, that, that simple little image has had a profound meaning for me throughout. That there, when I go to an academic convention, uh, and I, I know I'm going to be surrounded by a lot of people in the secular academy with whom I disagree, mm-hmm. uh, I, I've got to remember those sailors. Mm-hmm. And they may be telling us, you really messed up, uh, or you're really wrong about such and such. 
and uh, we welcome these then as learning opportunities. But but the, the underlying issue there is what, you know, to go back to our early language use, what are the virtues, what are the virtuous dispositions that need to be cultivated in us hmm. in order to be willing to take those risks of really listening to people with whom we disagree? Hmm. And uh, uh, I find this right now in the political debate in our own country, uh, it's very difficult for people to listen to the other side. Yeah, well, it definitely is. We're more divided, I think, in a lot of ways than we have been. Um, yeah. Uh, and but at this, you know, at the same time, the uh, I, I at least hope that the existence of that divide and perhaps a um, a better sense of the humility which really we ought to have um, will allow Christians who are divided on these issues to be able to listen to the critiques that the other side offers. Yeah, yeah. Um, although at times... Yeah, I, was once on, I was once on NPR. Uh, um, you, you may want to edit this out. I, don't know. I was on NPR with uh, uh, a queer theory guy. Okay. Uh, Gay, you know, gay rights, mm -hmm. but an, an academic. Mm -hmm. And uh, at a certain point, I said, you know, I, I wish that we could lower the rhetoric in public life on this. Uh, people like you and people like me could just get together and and I could ask you, what is it about people like me that scares you so much? You know, mm -hmm. and that you you can ask me, what what is it about what we are trying to get as rights on the LGBTQ community mm -hmm. that you find so threatening to your way of life. Mm -hmm. And that we just really talk about our hopes and fears, you know. Mm -hmm. And and he agreed with me. And then uh, it was a national NPR and they did a, a call in. And one of the first calls said to the the moderator of the discussion, uh, why do you have this Mao guy on there? Are you going to have a slave owner tomorrow defending slavery? Uh, mm. And and much to my 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 just great respect, my mm. my dialogue partner, the queer theorist, said mm. to that caller, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You know? mm. Mm. These are precisely the kind of conversations that we need if we're ever going to learn to live together. And you know, I, I really do think that we need to have those kinds of conversations and, and, and the gap between, say, my kind of evangelical Christians and his queer theory uh, community. Mm -hmm. uh, those gaps can be pretty big, but mm -hmm. there are things to talk about. And right. uh, I want to say even learn from mm -hmm. and be corrected by. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I and I and I think that it's important for us, and it it may well be that, you know, for for you, for me, who who live and operate so much of our lives within academic circles, um, where dialogue with people with whom you disagree, I think maybe hap maybe happens more readily uh, than it does in the in in, in the broader culture. It may be easier for us to say yes, we should go this route and 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 open up the doors of dialogue. Um, 
but for others it's hard. I mean, it really, really is hard because what you know, what does it require you to do to listen to that very uh, contrary voice? I mean, you have to let go just a little, I guess, yeah. to your uh, desire right. to win. Yeah. And um, and and really, for dialogue to happen, both sides have to be open and willing in that way. Yeah. Um, but that's hard. Hmm. Yeah, I've I've been involved for well, 16 years now in a Mormon evangelical dialogue. And mm-hmm. my counterpart at Brigham Young University, Bob Millett, he and I have gone gone around doing dialogues with Mormons and evangelicals in in mm-hmm. the crowd, you know. And on one of those occasions, uh, afterward, uh, two couples came up and said, we just want you to know, we live next door to each other. We've never met each other before, but we just recognized each other here tonight. Mm-hmm. And uh, we haven't talked to each other because we haven't known what, how to do it. But after hearing the two of you engage in dialogue, uh, we're going to get together for tomorrow uh, and, and just get to know each other better, you know. And I, I do think that you're right that there's often a gap between the academy and the the people, uh, ordinary neighbors, mm-hmm. on this. Uh, but very often, uh, I think the the academy can model something, because sometimes the inability of say the the Christian neighbor to meet with say the Mormon neighbor or the mm-hmm. Muslim neighbor. Is is simply awkwardness rather than overt mm-hmm. hostility and a fear that they're going to give in to the wrong kinds of things, you know, or right. they're going to ask the wrong kinds of questions. And so, I think in the academy, uh, when when we when we realize that that ultimately these 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 do rest on questions about our virtuous dispositions and our willingness to listen to people, that. Uh, Maybe we have some things that we need to be teaching in a broader way than simply in our own classrooms. Although, mm-hmm. at a place like Luther, you know where you are, it's it, it, it's a wonderful opportunity with a, a rising generation of uh, mm-hmm. of young people uh, to bottle. And I think just reading reading good literature or oh, yeah. is is a way of uh, cultivating that. And mm-hmm. we we need to be thinking of the of the ways in which liberal arts education can contribute to civil society. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that Jamie Smith stuff about mm-hmm. the the spiritual formation of which academic formation has to be integral or an integral yeah. element mm-hmm. uh, that uh, we need to do a better job in our colleges, uh, especially church-related schools. Yeah. How do we equip this generation for uh, the civil discourse Mm-hmm. That is uh, necessary. We haven't done a good job of that. No, I'm afraid we haven't. And and there are times in which I I wish we could uh, even more strongly trumpet the need for everybody to feel as though they have something to contribute in terms of both be, the, their own perspectives being communicated to others, but also their openness to listening as you. Uh, so nicely put it, listening to that contrary perspective, listening to that someone who might challenge you. We don't like to be challenged, right? We, no, we, that's we, right. And so we want to flock together and, and seek 
seek uh, areas where there is an orthodoxy that can be uh, can be contrasted with some heterodox positions outside of our our little circle, <laughs> and right. and feel safe, you know. Um, yeah. But, but really, this is a time as I as I tell my students all the time. Uh, man, I'd love to be in your shoes because these four years are the are the most the freest moments you'll have in your life. You know, to, to no, be that's able, right. you know, to be able to engage with people uh, yeah. that you disagree with. Um, and you know, the big question for me, and I say this also about seminaries, but certainly also about liberal arts colleges that uh, have a lot of uh, church-related, uh, you know, Christian kids in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I worry a lot about whether the churches will be ready to get them back. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, mm-hmm. once they've learned to learn the lessons that you you're trying to teach them about that mm-hmm. and and then they go back into churches that warn them against you know yeah. or, or 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 on the other extreme uh, yeah. provide no uh no no equipping of them to resist the falsehoods and yeah. the the biases of a larger culture you know sure mm-hmm. And it has to be continuity. This is one of those areas, you know, as Robert Bellow always talks about, you know, church, academy, and society, and there has to be a lot of continuity of the virtues that Hmm. need to be cultivated for all three. Mm -hmm. Well, Well, I I wonder, you know, one of the things, I'm sure my wife won't be, too upset with that I share this, but this is, you know, something, one of our dreams, one of the things we'd like to see happen just in our neighborhoods, you know, around is groups to get together just to read good stuff and talk about it, you know, with yeah. people far and wide. Um, you know, what what wonderful uh, opportunities there might be for us to grow as Christians, for them to grow and learn, you know, maybe, you know, we've got non-Christians participating in something like this, yeah. to understand that Christians think about these things too, yeah. uh, you know, and that, that we all might learn from one another. Um, right, and and that you don't, uh, I mean, uh, obviously we we don't want to miss opportunities to witness to our faith, but Mm-hmm. That the point of it is not to evangelize. Mm-hmm. The point of it is just to have good discussions about, say, good books, or, right. or uh, there was I, I preached in a large Pentecostal church in Singapore, mm. and uh, they had uh, their pastor had discovered some of this Christ and culture stuff, mm. and I, I talked about I mentioned uh, the the uh, the Walking Dead. <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm. It turns out they had a group in their church of about 40 people who one night a week would come together and they had all watched the latest episode of The Walking Dead and they would just talk about it. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, what happened this week? But also, uh, are there things in there that bother you as a Christian? Are there things there that are helpful to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you see Christian or non-Christian values at work in these things, you know? Yeah. What a what a wonderful thing when we talk about. Well, we get them at church for you know two hours at best, and, yeah. and television, and, and well, why not actually get them back to talk about some of the things they're watching right. on television? And, yeah. Yeah. And and or 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 a good book if people are still reading books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, before coming to Luther. Um, 
Uh, I was uh, a postdoc with um, with Ohio State University, but situated at Cornell um, in New York for an experiment that was being done there. And our church there um, began something that they, I think they still do, although they may do it in a, in a different way, but began a, a, a series of the monthly movie viewings at at someone's house, um, inviting everybody. I mean, by and large, at the beginning, we were you know it was just members of the church that would go to these things. But um, but uh, movies that were not you know not Christian movies. We're talking movies like Chocola and and yeah. and and Babette's Feast and 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 whatnot. Um, just talking about what 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 can we learn from this and 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 what do you see in it and and as you know. Uh, as I think that particular ministry developed, um, it came under the auspices of Chesterton House at Cornell, which is yeah, a great group. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, the founding, the founding, um, uh, uh, founding father. I don't want to say that. <laughs> he probably wouldn't want me. Carl Johnson. Uh, yeah. Good friend of mine. Uh, and mine. Yeah. At church, you know? So, so they continue to minister to to those outside. Um, and, and particularly the group at at, at, at Cornell, um, just a wonderful, uh, a wonderfully open group that discussed this very kind of thing. Well, um, I agree. It was yeah. So you know, I'd love to see that happen here. Yep. <laughs> yeah, know. man. So, yeah. Well, I I don't want to take too much more of your time, so I I, I thought maybe I'd just offer you a last word. Do you want that? What would you say to folks? You want to give them some advice? Um, there might be people who are still uncertain of really how Christians can, with integrity, engage in a serious manner with those outside Christian circles. Um, what do you have to say to them? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I want to say this: take your own fears seriously. That. Uh, don't don't just set them aside. Uh, I think these are very important issues to be dealing with, and they go deep into our souls. And uh, it's not it's not a bad thing to worry that you're going to be taken in by doing too much listening and too much <laughs> hearing too much criticism from other people. Uh-huh. But at the same time, uh, to 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 cultivate, and I think there's so much spirituality at work here that that, that needs to be formed of uh, of cultivating uh, a trust that we, you know, there is a God, and that God is at work in the world, and that we can learn from others, and that uh, some risk taking is is very important, and that we, above all people as Christians, uh, can be secure in our risk taking. Uh, because we do know that God will hmm. undergird our, our quests, uh, and that we're living in a time, I think, where uh, listening to the questions of others and looking at the, the, the answers that they are exploring in terms of their own deepest questions uh, mm-hmm. is very important for us to just stand alongside of them and hmm. to be, be listening to them. Um, I'm, I'm saying this a couple of weeks after you know, we stopped hearing the Christmas carols again this year. But that <laughs> that w- wonderful line, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in the and mm-hmm. We're living in a world in which there are a lot of hopes and fears that are at work undergirding a lot of other things. So that mm-hmm. people who are passionate about climate change one way or the other 
yeah. either for or against. Uh, those aren't just intellectual arguments, uh, yeah. but they're hopes and fears that are there. And mm. it's not enough just to try to win an argument, but it's to try to listen to the to the other. Uh, yeah. And and recognizing that we can do that with the trust that we are talking to people who, even though they don't acknowledge it, are created in the image of God, of the, the image of, mm-hmm. and, and of, of God, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, God is at work, and that uh, God, in God's own way, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. works in people's hearts. And mm-hmm. uh, it's not about us to, to win the arguments. Our job is to be faithful and relating to our fellow human beings with love. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you again um, about this new book and about these important issues, uh, especially, as you say, in a time like today when we see so much evidence for the need for thoughtful reflection okay, and engagement well, uh, that'll do it um, with others in society. So thanks profiles. so much for your time. Um, thank you, Todd, and blessing to all. Thank you. Book. The title, again, is Adventures in Evangelical Civility. It's published by Brazos Press. You can find it just about anywhere where good books can be found. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is a program, member program, of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. On behalf of the network and our press liaison, Kristen Philippic, uh, this is Todd Pedler uh, signing off and thanking you for listening. <laughs>